Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that you are here with us. And Lord, I offer you my words. And I pray that your spirit will speak directly into people's hearts so that we all hear what you want us to hear today. Amen. Now, it's been a quiet week in the Cope household this week. See, I completely lost my voice on Tuesday. Those of you who know me will know I don't do being quiet very well. So, it's been quiet. I've been poorly. I've been grumpy. But the kind of nice thing, you know, when you're poorly and you've got a cold and you tuck up with a duvet on the sofa and you watch a bit of trashy telly and you reread your favourite books. Now, I've been rereading some very cheesy murder mysteries I quite like cheesy murder mysteries, particularly the historical ones. And uh, you always know that there's some sort of sex and scandal, and that's going to be what's behind the murder, and it's great fun. And what about the other things we watch? I mean, the children, they, well, they love the veggie tales. That was fun, wasn't it? That was fun, but that was sort of sanitised. But what about the things we watch, the things we read? Every film we go and see in the cinema, there's some mad, passionate affair, or some great romance. And the books we read, I just wonder sometimes, is it so ingrained in our culture? Do, do we just think that's what's going to happen? Now, one thing is certain, though. Throughout all of history, men and women have always strayed, for want of a better word. Take David and Bathsheba, three centuries, 3,000 years ago. And this story, it seems just as relevant as anything today. But somehow, it's not fiction. It's not some film in the cinema. It's in our Bible. It's in our holy book. And that just makes it more painful, more real. So as we read this section of David's life, well, we just keep coming up against these real painful issues It's not the sort of things that we like to talk about, but it's very much the sort of thing that as Christians we need to talk about. Questions which deal with the raw pain of real life. And we need to make sure that when we talk about them, we talk about them with a balance of love and truth and grace. So before we get into this shocking tale of sex, lies, murder... I think it's important that we make sure we've got a sound biblical framework, that we know what they're talking about. Because this story is ultimately a story of forgiveness. It's one which can help us all to see how much God loves us and to start to glimpse what he might be able to do with our lives if we offer them up to him. So let's start with this biblical framework. You see, I want to tell you this morning that I believe in marriage, in lifelong, committed, loving relationships. I think that two people really can share their lives at the deepest level, united with one another in heart, body, and mind. I believe that God gives us the gift of sexual union as part of deepening friendship, commitment, and love. Sex is good. I also believe that God can help us to keep our marriage vows for better, for worse, 
for richer, for poorer, to love, to cherish, till death us do part. Hard work, but worth it. I also think that marriage isn't just the concern of the couple involved. It's part of what we all are as the community. So, excuse me, how often have you stood in a church where two people that you really love are standing there and the minister has turned to you and said, will you, the families and friends of these two people, support and uphold them in their marriage now and in the years to come? And we all say, we will. We want to support our friends. As a community, we have promised to do all that we can to support each other's marriages. We read about God's plan for marriage in Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. But this was before the fall. And the world that we live in today is broken and fallen. The Bible doesn't try to hide it from us. Even the Mosaic law acknowledges and makes provision for broken marriages. Relationships destroyed through abuse, neglect, desertion and adultery. These things are so heartbreaking. But we need to know that God knows and understands this pain. He knows the pain of a broken relationship firsthand. Because in Jeremiah, we read that the covenant between the people of Israel and God is described as a marriage covenant. And then in Jeremiah 3.8, it says, God says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. God knows this pain. And what's more, the more I spend time reading through the Old Testament, the more you can see it, that God loves Israel so much. God loves man so much. And we continually reject him. For those of you who've been through the pain of a marriage breakdown for whatever reason, you don't need the story of David and Bathsheba to tell you how much it hurts. But you might need to hear that God loves you. And as a community here in Campbell, we are a community of broken, messed up and hurting individuals. But we are a community brought together by God by the God of love who knows us and who shares our pain. The second point I want to make, there is more to life than sex. Those films, those books, I think they've got it wrong. There is more to a marriage than sex. Most importantly, as Christians, we care for each other throughout the whole community as people, not as sexual objects. And we care for each other not because of what people's sexual ethics might be, important as they are. God is going to judge us just as much on social justice, on how we spend our money, and our time, and our attitudes to each other. There is more to life than sex. Finally, I want to make it clear that I believe in a God of love. I believe that Christ died for our sins while we were still sinners because we all fall short of the standards that God requires. And I believe that we can be forgiven and that God will work in us to change us and to do great things through his power. So 
We need to hold these things together as we turn to our passage this morning because this is not a story of the world as it should be. This is very much a story of the world as it is. It all starts with a movement glimpsed in the corner of David's eye. He turns his head to look. He could have looked away, but nobody knew he was looking. And she was so beautiful as the evening breeze brought the sounds and smells of spring. David took a second look. Beautiful and naked. All around him there were signs of new life, fertility. It was springtime, the time of year for, well, he looked closer. But he could have looked away. It felt so good to be up there on the roof, away from the hubbub below, where his advisors all day, they'd been coming to him, giving the news from war. The war, yeah, that was the other thing. It was the time of year when kings go off to war. David should have been out there with his men. His heart wasn't in it anymore, though. He'd won his glory years before, when he was a younger man. Surely he'd learnt a little me-time by now. But out there in the evening sun, he started daydreaming. He remembered when the girls used to dance and sing. David has killed his thousands. They still danced for him, but he rather thought it was just because he was the king. Shrugging off those dark thoughts hovering on the edge of his mind, David turns his attention back to the woman. He smiled, let his gaze linger, hungrily. He could have looked away. He made inquiries, found out who she was. They did try to tell him, it's Uriah's wife, sir, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, your best soldier, Uriah's wife, sir. But what can you say to the king? I wonder what Bathsheba thought when the message arrived. We sometimes think of her as this wanton temptress waiting up there on the roof to strip off and and to make the king fall. But I wonder if it was just more normal. She's alone again. Her husband, he's away on business again. She just like to live a bit again, to get rid of the loneliness. Maybe just someone interesting to talk to. Maybe I'm letting my imagination run away with myself. Too much chiclet, you say. But the story has been relived so many times throughout the centuries, and we know that this, this happens. Nobody sets out to have an affair, though, do they? It just happens. Just... Think of the people you know whose marriages have been torn apart in this way. Remember on their wedding day when you looked at them and you said, these guys, they're meant for each other. Or maybe it's your own marriage and your own lost hopes, dreams. Where did it go wrong? The Bible doesn't spell out for us what happened with David and Bathsheba. But the story I've just told you, It fits the facts. 
And there are several key issues that David and Bathsheba were, well, running away from, quite frankly. And there are issues that, to a greater or lesser degree, we all face. And we are naive if we think that our marriage will survive if we just ignore that. If we think that our faith will protect us, or God won't let that happen to us, it'll happen to somebody else. That's not how it is. And for some here this morning, I know it's already happened. But going back to our story of uh, David and Bathsheba, I wonder, what do you think David thought as he looked down on Bathsheba bathing? And when, when did it become a sin? I mean, he couldn't help the first glance. He couldn't help that she was naked. But he could have looked away. And instead, he kept looking, letting his imagination take her before he even knew who she was. That was lust. That's not the proper sexual desire, the proper God-given sexual desire for a much-loved marriage partner. That's just an animal desire to meet needs, to use someone for our own gratification. Oh yeah, David knew lust as he stood there on the rooftop. He wanted her as another trophy, not because he knew what she was like. And lust grows when you feed it. And what began in his imagination ended in a terrible reality. It isn't always just about sex, though. You see, we know that people often fall into an affair when a platonic friendship just crosses an invisible line. They're lonely. They might share their house or even their bed with a marriage partner, but they feel misunderstood. No one listens. And then they meet someone who does. Even if there's no physical sex, I think we can still say that that's an affair because the spiritual core of the marriage is being eroded. I wonder if Bathsheba was looking for that kind of love. And as J. John has written, to treat loneliness by having an affair is as sensible as burning your house down to keep warm. Yeah, it happens again and again as so many people know to their despair. Maybe it wasn't loneliness. I mean, who knows if they spent much time talking anyway. But I wonder if she was bored by herself at home. Certainly, I'm sure David was. I mean, it was the first time he'd stayed away from the wars. Probably wasn't working out to be the retirement he'd planned, was it? He'd lost his purpose He'd lost the drive he once had. So maybe they were both looking for excitement. And hey, going to bed with the king sounds like it should give you a bit of excitement, doesn't it? Except Bathsheba was already married. I wonder, do you think David was feeling insecure? I mean, he'd, he'd stayed away from the wars. Why? Do you think he was feeling old? Well, it's ten years since he came into Jerusalem. Do you think he was... Worried that he was past it? Certainly, an affair with a beautiful younger woman, that's going to make him feel youthful again, isn't it? And it'll help him to escape all those worries of state which are still heavy on his shoulders. So what do you think? Lust, loneliness, boredom, insecurity, escapism. Is an affair inevitable? Sounds so normal, doesn't it? 
I said at the beginning that I believe in marriage, and I do, but I also believe it is hard work, incredibly hard work. We need to dedicate time and energy to make it last. We need to remember why we fell in love, to pay compliments to each other, and to help each other become the kind of people that God wants us to be. We need to walk away when we see the warning signs that we're focusing in our heads too much on lust. Or if that special friend, if we're getting a bit too close, we need to walk away. And if that's where you are right now, there are people in the church here who can pray with you, who won't judge you. They make mistakes too, but they can pray with you and they'll keep your confidence. But I want to tell you that we are all struggling in our lives. It's not just about sex. None of us are perfect. We have to come to Jesus every single day and say, I'm sorry. Every day, I have to say, I'm sorry. We need to ask for forgiveness and the strength to keep doing the right things. But most importantly, for us as a church today, I want to say we are a community and we believe in marriage and we should be doing all we can to support each other's marriages. Our friends, I wonder, what do you think Jonathan would have said to David if he'd still been around? Do you think he'd have made him see sense? Do you have somebody who would make you see sense? Our reading told us what happens next. The events were out of control. Bathsheba was pregnant. David was desperate to find a way to cover it up. How it goes, isn't it? The books and the films. The raw passion and excitement at the start of an affair. And then the lies and the deception and the pain. For David, well, Uriah wasn't going to shirk his duty. He wasn't going to leave his men on the front line and go home for a loving reunion with his wife. David should have been on the front line. But David arranged to have him killed. A few short weeks ago, David lusted after a beautiful stranger. And now he's signing the death warrant of one of his best soldiers. And he could have looked away. Trouble with sex is that the desires can seem so powerful. It seems like love will conquer all and it's the only possible thing that you can do. Sometimes we need jolting out of ourselves to realize what's really going on. Now Nathan, the prophet, he was one of the few men who dared to speak up to the king. And after almost a year after that encounter on the rooftop, when the time was right. God used him to get through to the troubled king. Now David thought he got away with it. He'd married Bathsheba by now. And when the baby came early, well, it was a bit premature. Maybe, maybe nobody would realize it had been conceived before the wedding. But Nathan, he knew. God had told him what to say. And notice, Nathan didn't rush in, guns blazing, did he? He didn't rush in and put David on the defensive with excuses, no. He appealed to David's sense of justice. Gently, he helped David to see the unvarnished truth. 
we read it just now, Nathan's story of the rich man stealing the poor man's lamb is so clear-cut. And David instantly springs to the poor man's defence and condemns the rich man to death. But that rich man, says Nathan, it's you. I am so glad we have this painful story in our Bibles. You see, David, a man after God's own heart, he's just as fallen as me, as you. Now, some here this morning, they'll know all about the effects of an affair on a marriage. And perhaps there are some, even now, who are on the edge of an affair. I am sure David wished that he had looked away, walked away, stopped it, before it was too late. I sincerely hope none of us have been driven to murder. But I know we've all at times had anger in our hearts. I have. And as Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery. And if you have anger and hate, you've committed murder. We all need forgiveness. Now, David's personal journey of penitence is powerfully recorded in the great congregational Psalm 51. Why not turn to it? It's in your Bibles on page uh, 549. And this is the psalm he wrote afterwards, reflecting back on his experiences. It's based on his repentance before Nathan, and it shows how deeply he was convicted of his sin and how he fell on God's mercy. More than that, by composing this psalm, he has helped countless men and women articulate the grief that their guilt has brought them. This psalm has even helped inspire St. Paul, and it's directly quoted by him in the famous passages in Romans 3 on the faithfulness of God and righteousness by faith alone. It also guides us today when we come before the most holy God, broken and sinful, and we don't know what to say. Let's look at it now. Psalm 51 opens, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now look, David offers no excuses there, does he? There's no mitigating circumstances. He knows what he did was wrong. For I know, verse 3, my transgressions, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. He knows it was his inherent sinfulness that gave him the capacity to do these things, a sinfulness that had been present even from the moment of birth, but he knows it was his choice. He could have looked away. David leaves us with no illusions here. And as St. Paul was later to write, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means me. You. All we can do in response is join David in praying, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But then, verse 12, the whole atmosphere of this penitential psalm changes. It brightens. The light at the end of the tunnel is glimpsed. The joy of salvation. This is the fruit of true repentance, not just a 
confession of sin, but a new way of living. David now promises to teach of God's ways, to bring others to salvation, and to sing the Lord's righteousness. And in those so familiar words, in the traditional responses, O Lord, open our mouths, open our lips, and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. This is the joy of forgiveness. This is the heart of the story of David and Bathsheba. When God forgives us, he changes us, and our very lives will go on to sing his praise. I wish I could stop there. I wish that being forgiven meant it hadn't happened, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. Freedom from guilt, joy in salvation. Oh yes, God promises us these things. But David could not undo the consequences of his actions. Nathan warned him that as he had killed by the sword, so too would his family die by the sword. And they did, his sons, Amnon, Absalom, Adonjah. Nathan told him that as he'd taken another's wife, another would sleep with his wife. And they did, his own son, Absalom, out on the roof for everyone to see. And Nathan told David that the child would die. There was no escaping the consequences of his sin. David fasted and wept and prayed for a week. But the child still died how we feel for him. But you know, there's still hope. If you look at 2 Samuel 12, 23, then David said, now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? And here's the hope. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. You see, I think that knowing forgiveness through God's mercy, David knows that when his time on earth is spent, he'll be there with that innocent child, they will be reunited. This painful, difficult story, it has focused heavily on the effects of a physical affair but, and the spiral of consequences as David tried to cover that up with murder. But, you know, I think it has a powerful message for each and every one of us. You see, the story of adultery is retold as a story of theft and injustice by Nathan. And today, it can be easy to think that just because we're behaving in the bedroom, then we're okay. We can be smug. It's not like that. Where do you spend your money? What's my attitude to the poor, to my boss? What do we think of those around us? Those things are much less clear-cut, but just as important. What can we do? We repeat those words from Psalm 51. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, we can move on. You see, David renewed his commitment to God. And he started the painful process of rebuilding his life. We read in verse 24 that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. How easy that makes it sound. But, you know, I think in the end he really did love her and that theirs was a relationship that they worked on that wasn't just about sex. 
Now, whether we're working to protect our marriages, to rebuild a broken marriage, or most fundamentally, whether we are working to become men and women after God's own heart, God is there to help us. In fact, we need him. We can't even try to do it by ourselves. We have to let him open our eyes and to speak what might be painful truths into our lives. And part of that awakening is to realize how much he loves us, loves us so much. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. Jesus died and rose again for me and for you. I don't for one minute believe that it was God's plan that David sinned with Bathsheba in this way. But I know that God forgave him. And I know that God brought good even out of this terrible situation. Because David and Bathsheba, they had another child, Solomon. Solomon, the wisest of kings. Solomon who built the temple. And it was from the line of Solomon that the Messiah, the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that was the line of Jesus. This story of terrible failure and broken lives and pain, it has been a difficult one. But ultimately, it ends with a message of hope for us all. I know I don't even live up to the standards which I set for myself, let alone God's standards. But I know that God will forgive me and he will forgive each one of us. No matter what we've done, God loves us. You know what else? I can't wait to see what God is going to do in our lives. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you that we see the human side of David as we read the Bible. Thank you that this story can teach us so much about how you love and forgive us. We know we are broken, messed up people, just like David. And we're so glad that you understand our hurt, rejection and pain. We thank you for your love, which will help renew us, change us, and give us the strength to be men and women after your own heart.